This is Kev Zettler. And this is Sishet K. Faber. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you're going to hear topics discussed. Kev, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Nothing to plug. Happy to be here. Happy 2023. The first first show recorded in the new year. First time, long time. Sis, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Hello, I am Sishet K. Faber, and welcome to Topic Lords 2023, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. And uh, yeah, I'd like to plug... Uh, would you would you like to host the show? Because you can no, just do that not, from now on. <laughs> not really. I mean, it's fun, but like, you know, it's tiring. I'd like to sleep sometimes. That's true. That's fair. I like the show as it is. So um, I'm a fan. So I would plug Topic Lords, but you're already listening. And so I think that I will plug getting a very light hobby that is kind of shallow, which is like, I got into Rubik's Cube, which is very deep. However, you can get on YouTube and learn a lot about Rubik's Cube very quickly, and you can become pretty good at it very quickly. And it's nice to get into a hobby that's not like you're getting into like 300 years of artistry and technical knowledge and be able to like pick it up in a couple months and do it. And so I I would plug getting into a kind of hobby you think might be too shallow for you because it's going to be more rewarding on the back end. Yeah, I... I got a little bit into Rubik's Cube, and then I stopped when I realized that the way forward was to memorize it was the equivalent of like six eight-digit numbers. Yep. And that's that's just that's how you get to be able to do, be able to do this. Yes. And that was just like this is this is not a fun thing. So I I broke through the other side, and I decided so because I learned Japanese, which involved a lot of flashcards. I was like, this is only like sixty things. I can flashcard this and do it in like a couple weeks. Oh yeah. I did it and it's good, but also that's why I kind of consider it a sort of shallower kind of hobby for me because it fit in with things I was already good at. I was able to do very well with it very quickly. So yeah, I've been I've been meaning to get back into Anki or wherever wherever that program yeah, Anki, is. Yeah, Anki. Yeah. Wait, what is Anki? Yeah, so Anki is a flashcard program, but specifically designed for what's called spaced repetition. Okay. So it tries to show you things right before it thinks you're going to forget it. And it has uh, an algorithm to try to predict when you're going to forget and then show you what you need to know right before. So you practice it right before you forget it. So you recall and then things work their way efficiently into your long-term memory. Yeah, it's it's an incredible, incredible life hack. What have you all learn through space repetition. I'm familiar with the pattern. I haven't intentfully applied it to anything yet. What I was trying to do was I had gotten the, uh, the app for Android and I was just, I was looking for a, a way to learn the English subset of the IPA. And I- Perfect. It, it was a, it's, it is a perfect application of this tool, but the deck that I found, like I, I was just dissatisfied with it. And in order, like there, it was the only one in the database. And I was like, well- now I can learn how to make a deck or I can give up. And I chose the second one. Yes. Therein lies the problem with Anki. I first used Anki to to memorize um, the coding for pizza orders at the first pizza place I worked at when I was in university. And then after that, I was in a university like audio engineering program. And we had to learn a bunch of like microphone specs. And I did that. And then I used it mostly to learn Japanese for a very long time. 
And then when I was doing Cisco networking training to get a certification, I used it for that too. So I've used Anki to learn anything that requires memorization over the past, I don't know, 12 years. Yeah, it seems like you've used it to great effect. Yeah, but the problem is that I had to make all my own decks basically because all of the decks that you find online for anything are not very good. Well, there you go. That Yeah, and, and it's just a matter of like, yeah, sitting down and actually doing it. Yeah. Regarding uh, low-key hobbies that you can kind of do while just sitting there and having a conversation. I So I just made a, um, a small game for Christmas, you know, like a Christmas card kind of a game. And I was realizing like, so the, I did it by like taking for a week, taking evenings away from my, the time that I spend with my wife and just doing this instead. And that's not, you know, how I want to live my life, but I would like to do more small projects like that. And I was thinking like, well, my wife takes her embroidery everywhere and works on it all the time, just wherever she goes. What if I were to take a laptop and just work on small projects, you know, while I'm just hanging out with people? And the problem with that is that, like, making a game, it takes all of my focus. Yeah. Depending on the task. Uh, and so, like, I would end up ignoring the room and being annoyed when people talk to me. Yeah, that's one of those things, yeah, where even if you want to do that and be available to everyone in that moment, there is no way for you to do the thing that you want to do while also being available. Right. And the other thing that came to mind was like, well, I've got my, uh, I've got the Novation Circuit Tracks, which is the the groove box that I've made a, like a half dozen songs with. And that's that's a fun thing that doesn't take all my concentration. But what it does take is me wearing headphones the whole time. <laughs> So I can't have a conversation. So the the question is, is there anything that's like supplementary to those hobbies that you could do that doesn't take full focus, right? So if you're, yes. you're going to do game dev, can you like, you know, sit there and like sketch out a level design or some character art or something? Well, yeah, you know? so some, some subset of game development, maybe I could do right. pixel art or something. Yeah. Yeah, it, I could I could definitely get things done. I just need to they just need to be the right things. Yeah, like the music you could just walk around with drumsticks and then start playing beats on your leg or something while people yeah. are talking to you. That that could be your new your new look. Yeah, that that is that does um uh overlap with the thing that I, I wanted to talk about but I didn't make a topic which is like um recently I work a job that I really like that doesn't take up a lot of my time in a bad way. However, the work-life balance equation has now shifted such that I do not get quite enough work time. And I find work time fulfilling because I get to do productive things in a very, uh, in a way where expectations are extremely clear in a way that in life they are not. Like when you're in a family and you've got three or four people around you and you're trying to make sure everybody's okay moment to moment, there's just a lot of things to take care of. And then when I'm yep. at work, like I just do my work and I am I work from home. And so all of the expectations come through Slack. They are very clear and I can push them forward. And so I find myself like at the end of a long vacation like we just had over the new year, like I just kind of want to get back to work so I can decompress from home. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. Not necessarily for the same reasons, but um, mostly it's being around my kid. Like it's, I love him and I love being around him, but also it is exhausting. Yeah, they take so much attention moment to moment. 
Yeah, and it like taking care of a kid is way harder than than any white collar job, I think. Yes, that has been my experience as well. Are we uh are we ready to start on some topics? Yeah, let's do it. Uh Kev, your topic is food from dreams and nightmares. Okay, so this topic uh this was inspired by a tweet called The King's Hand, in which the author of this tweet dreamed of a recipe called the King's Hand, which was an M&M cookie in the shape of a hand stuffed with Greek salad. So if you haven't checked that out, <laughs> check that out. Uh, and that inspired me to bring that on topic, Lords, because I also have tried to cook random things I've dreamed about. One that immediately comes to mind is uh, orange mashed potatoes. So <laughs> your standard mashed potatoes, but with essentially orange juice or some citrus juice mixed up in it. I dream that for some reason this would be like a dessert, like an orange creamsicle or something. Totally didn't work out like that. Can you describe why that didn't work out? Because it seems so much like it should have worked. Uh, the orange flavor was a little too much. And part part of this recipe was also inspired because I like to eat like, you know, French fries, fish and chips. They usually come with like a lemon wedge. And, you know, you, you kind of are then putting lemon all over the fries. And that was a bit of the inspiration for this as well. But then kind of the orange creamsicle dream did not work out. Uh... And the the potatoes just—it's hard to describe it. It just didn't work in the end, unfortunately. Uh, so that that was kind of my experience. Not so many meals from nightmares or anything. Uh, and I was wondering if you all had any to share. So I just wanted to—I I searched for the king's hand. I found an article on BuzzFeed News with with photos. This is a this hand. It looks way more realistic than I was expecting. <laughs> like this this canned cookie like must be oh yeah there's a there's a silicon mold that they use. Yeah, yeah. And they have the M and M's for fingernails that really adds another layer to it. Yeah, that's uh, an extra layer of body horror. It is horrifying and I remember that tweet and that tweet haunts me in my nightmares. <laughs> the king's hand kinda seems Tasty. I would definitely try that. Can you describe what's in a Greek salad? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's chopped up cucumbers, tomatoes, and I think romaine lettuce with maybe feta cheese. So a citrusy, kind of salty, light salad. I love a cookie. I like like an M&M cookie and I love a Greek salad. I don't think they would go together. But like, you know, you put them both on a plate and I'll eat the plate. Not the plate itself. <laughs> But I'll eat, the <laughs> I'll eat the food on the plate. I just might not take, you know, bites of it together. I have a reaction when I see that tweet and the and what happened with it. And like, like, I like all those ingredients. Like, and I enjoy a cookie from time to time. But the idea of everything together to me is just so gross that I... I don't understand how anybody could bring themselves to do that. And this is the kind of answer that I was expecting. Like when you talk to, oh, I can't, I can't call back to this previous topic because it's going at the end. I know. Well, <laughs> I was going to say I want to throw my phone in the ocean. 
Listeners, if you don't throw your phone in the ocean, you might find out why she said that. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have anything that comes from like a dream that way in terms of like night like a dream food or nightmare food, but I did have a a spell where I would fall asleep while chewing gum and I was having a dream where I was eating and then I woke up mid dream and I bit into this minty gum. And it was very similar to the feeling of if like if you just brushed your teeth and you have orange juice or you bite yeah. into something that is like spongier than it ought to be, where it's just like the texture was not what I was expecting. And I immediately had like nausea and had a problem and had to like sit down for like 10 minutes and be like, I need to stare at this wall. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, uh, sounds unpleasant. Sounds like we're ready for another topic. Let's do it. Uh, since your topic is Han unification happened in Unicode, and every time they add more emoji to the Unicode spec, it literally hurts. So I'm sure everybody here knows what Han unification in Unicode is. Yes? No, I do not. Yeah, I, I actually don't. I don't either. Do you know what Unicode is? Uh, yeah. I'm... Do you know what letters are? Okay, good, perfect. Um, so, uh, so Unicode is the way that. Everything on a computer has to be represented by a number. And when you got like the alphabet, you can have like one through 26 or however many characters there are. And you can kind of represent stuff very easily. But then when you start talking about punctuation or accented characters or letters from any other language, you start having to use more numbers to represent more things. And Unicode was developed so like we could put everything in the same number space. And the thing that they did was they decided that they were going to use like uh, 16-bit numbers, which is pretty good. There's like a lot. There's what, like 65,000 or something, or there's millions or whatever. I, you know, I don't do computers for a living. I don't know. <laughs> but like, there's a lot. But then they looked at Asia and they were like, all your characters look real similar. What if we just merged them all together? And Asia was like, no, that's horrible. These are not – they look the same, but they are not the same. Like they seem similar to you because you don't speak the language, but these are not actually the same. And then all the people on the Unicode board were like, these look similar enough. We're going we're gonna to merge them. And what happened was that they merged all of the kanji in Japanese with all of the hanzi in Chinese and all of the – Sort of similar to Japanese, um, Korea has a set of characters borrowed from China that are very similar to Hanzi, and they decided they just decided like we're just gonna we're just gonna merge all of these, and we're just gonna tell you like if you want to differentiate, just use a different font. And what that left them with was an entire unused space in the rest of the spec because they had merged them. Because if they hadn't merged them, that would have been like 50,000 characters or something. But then they merged them. So it's only like 20,000. So then they get like 10,000 characters of free space to work with. And they decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put emoji inside Unicode. And so like every time you type a happy face or, every, or anything like that, that's all inside Unicode. And large space there for, for emojis. But then... The problem that happens is that like if you import a Chinese phone to Japan or if you just buy a phone in Japan that happens to be made by a Chinese manufacturer and they have messed up the fonts, you just get Chinese characters that are representing Japanese on your phone. And like this messes up 
font rendering throughout all of Asia constantly to this day. And then every time now the Unicode spec changes, which is like once a year or once every six months, they add more emojis. And it, it hurts me to my core every time they do that because that is space that they took from uh, Asian characters in order to be able to do that. So are we talking about like when they you say they merged the two character sets is it just that like these are the these two symbols look similar but are in different languages yes it's not just like two like they took all of the asian languages that you that happen to use chinese characters and they said in the cases where it looks like a similar character we're going to merge them together such they are represented by the same number and so that you can't like quote one language from the other. No. Okay. This is a problem. Why didn't they just like increase like the number the the bit depth of the anyway. That's another they way did. they could have done it. They did. Okay, okay great. Cuz there is UTF32 and also UTF16 would and UTF24 would also support this fine because the way that Unicode is designed is that it's backwards compatible with ASCII and there's a high order bit which allows you to get to different layers of it such that you can do variable length encoding on text so that if something you're doing is in a Western language represented only by ASCII, takes up a very small amount of space. If something is in a more complicated language that is further away, takes up more space. And there is already there was already a variable length Unicode in the spec and they had room in the map to do it. They just decided like, we don't want to give this this much of the spec to Asia, and so we're going to decide like because they're no. not worth it. It it made a certain kind of sense if you don't know any of the languages. <laughs> so so Sith, let me make sure I understand this. Your position is that you feel they could, I guess, unwind the unification and put all the different kanji languages into the spec instead of. In continually adding emojis to the spec, you, that's a matter of priorities. You think they should adjust? My my point is, we could have had everything. That what they were thinking was that they didn't know these languages, and they saw Chinese and saw like Chinese has fifteen thousand of these Hanzi characters, and so if we have hundreds of languages in Asia and all of them have their own fifteen thousand characters, we can't support that. But then if they had like done a study, they would have found that they only had to support like, I don't know, 80,000 characters or something because nobody went as insane as China on this stuff. And so like they could have, we could have had everything and now there is no way to fix it. And I'm all for more emojis in Unicode. Like that's fine. Like there's, there is like universes of room within UTF-32 to support all of that. That's no problem. But my issue is that th there's a lot of excitement about expanding Unicode to include more emojis every year, while I know that there was not that uh, – well, well, there was a similar level of excitement for <laughs> removing characters from like languages that people speak and use. <laughs> uh, so you were saying there's no fixing this, and I think you're probably right, but what if – uh, they decided we're going to um, just all the remaining space that would have been taken up by all of these different languages. What if we just 
make sure that remains unused forever. Would that would that help? I don't think it would help because the world that has just means moved psychologically. On. Psychologically, would that help you? Huh? It might actually. Like I, I was ready to say that no, it wouldn't. But I think I think it might. I think not being constantly reminded that con- that Han unification happened would be a psychological benefit. Yeah. Do they wait? Are they like when they when they say, "Okay, here's the new emoji." Do they say what character it was replacing that used to be there? There's no character it was replacing because all of this, all of the Han unification and all of the empty space in the spec is there by design. It was all done out of an abundance of caution. And so there is a lot of empty space in the spec, which means, which is also, I think, maybe I I misspoke earlier when I said that maybe this is not fixable or um, I'd be happy with just no more emojis or something, but like... My key annoyance is that there literally was enough space in the spec at the time that they were debating this and they chose not to do it. And now that they have that empty space, they are choosing to use it and it's annoying. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. Well, there is that narrative that emoji is becoming the, you know, international new global meme language of the internet. So... We, we're getting return on investment there. Yeah, I mean, like, emojis are good, and I, I like them. However, it's not a universal language. Like, there's an emoji that's prey that is used constantly in Japanese, and it means thank you in Japanese. It doesn't mean prey. And so it's like, with as many things as, as people think are universal, it turns out are actually culturally based and interpreted differently so I, I understand you weren't saying it like quite as seriously as I'm responding. And so I'm being kind of a jerk here. But like even emojis aren't universally interpreted. Yeah. I mean, that you could make the argument that that prey emoji, there should be two of them. One meaning thank you and one meaning prey. Yes, exactly. Are we uh, ready for another topic? Yes. Uh, my topic is the super mega crossword. So I've been doing the the New York Times crossword for several years and every year in over the christmas holiday they um they publish a book of puzzles like the the i forget what it's called but um it contains this extremely large crossword puzzle that like takes the whole uh three 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 newspaper sheets to to print uh and this puzzle is not available on the the app so i solve the puzzle i i solve the puzzle every day on the new york times app on android there's also one on iphone but this thing is just too big to like reasonably do. Like maybe you could do it on an iPad, but you couldn't reasonably. There was no reasonable interface you could use for this thing on a uh, on a phone. It's just too big. And I just decided I'm gonna get the physical edition of this this year to figure out like, do I actually enjoy this? It sounds cool to do like it's, a, it's like a crossword, but it's bigger. And so I uh, I paid for shipping to get a copy of a uh, Puzzle Mania is the name of the insert that they that they print. Uh, I got a copy of Puzzle Mania, this year's Puzzle Mania. And in the Puzzle Mania, like, it includes, it's got, it's got this huge crossword puzzle, the super mega crossword, but it's also got a, a series of other puzzles. And then there's a meta puzzle that, that you can solve and, like, maybe win a prize or something. I'm getting too old for that shit. <laughs> I have no, no patience for ARG stuff these days. But I have been working on the, the crossword, and, man, it's a pain in the ass. Like just the fact that it's so big, I need to clear off a ton of space on a table to do it. And I have, I've had, I've done this like 
four or five times because, you know, you don't solve this thing in one session, or at least I don't. Uh, so I've, I've, I'm, I don't know, maybe, maybe halfway through and I've, I've done four or five sessions so far. And like when I'm, when I'm entering things in the grid that are like far away from me, I have to lean way over the table. And like, if I am writing in the grid spaces that are on the left-hand side of the page, it's an awkward position for my hand. And also just the fact of doing it on paper means that you need to be like, like when you, when you're in the app, uh, the clue that appears on the screen, like it, there's a, it highlights the part of the grid that it's, that it, that it goes in and you can just look there and see like, oh yes, it's referring to this, this section of the grid. And here's what I already have there. Here's the crosses that I have. Uh, whereas if you're doing it on paper, you have to like, here's the clue, look at the number associated with the clue, then find the number in the grid. You have to do that manually by eye. And it's like really inconvenient. <laughs> Wow, wow. Yeah, I had, a, I had a question about the girthiness of this puzzle, which is that yeah. like, is it that there are just a lot of words and a lot of clues or are they like very long words? Yeah, like what's the longest segment or like block on the grid for a, I, a word? Yeah, so normally like normal crossword puzzles will usually have puzzle spanners like going across the entire puzzle. Uh, I had I didn't have not taken notice of whether... Those exist on this, but there are definitely clues that are longer than you would get like on across the uh, the Sunday puzzle, for example. And those are just like just hanging out in the grid, um, like not not even they're not 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 puzzle spanners. They're just there. And so it's both. It, it has way more clues than usual. I would guess like 10 times as many clues and answers. There's a lot of the, the tiny like three letter words just because like kind of inevitably create those when you're constructing a puzzle like it's it's impossible to have only the good answers you have you have to rely on words that are just like okay these words come up like 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 eno for Bryant like eno is just like a series of letters that happens to come up a lot uh when you're trying to make crosswords work together or like ion or like Yoko Ono is another one, O-N-O, like just these these sequences of letters just happen enough that like people who do crosswords a lot will just, yeah, I'll, I'll fill this in. It's not a good answer, but it's, it's a necessary evil for like the, the process of what it, what it is like to construct a crossword puzzle. Yeah, so what you're describing is that this is basically the Elden Ring of crossword puzzles. <laughs> it's open world. Yeah. Wait, wait, Jim, so you do crossword puzzles daily on a mobile app. That's correct, Yes, right? that's correct. That's pretty cool. That goes back to our, like, casual hobby discussion about Rubik's oh, Cubes yeah. and stuff. And that one's, like, yeah, and actually the, the crossword is uh, a good, like, it, you could do it by yourself or you can, like, ask the room questions, and that's fun. And the the problem with me doing uh, crosswords uh, in in like in a in a room like in a social situation is that I usually do the crossword in the morning and then it's by the time I'm in a social yeah. situation it's done for the day, so I should just stop doing that. You're doing the dailies. How long do you think the mega is going to take you to complete? You said you're like ten percent done. Uh, no, I, I'm probably more like forty percent. Is my okay, guess? Okay, awesome. That's another thing is that uh, the app will tell you what percentage done you are, whereas if you're uh, doing the 
puzzle on paper. You just have to kind of eyeball it and guess, or I guess you could count how many squares you've filled in. Like it's not a fully like a, it's not exactly just like, here's what doing crosswords was like in the nineties, because there's also the weirdness of it just being huge. So in a way, this is like me doing two experiments and ones and having no control group, but it's, it's been interesting. It's been like, it's, it's fun in the same way that the regular crossword is fun. I don't think the additional size makes it feel significantly more satisfying, unfortunately. Oh, one, one nice thing about a print puzzle, the app will tell you when you have done the puzzle correctly, uh, which means you can fill it out to your own satisfaction. And, and then the app will be like, nope, you didn't get it. Uh, and then you have to figure out like, okay, which of these like squares does it not like? Uh, and sometimes there's a typo in there, or sometimes it's like something that it's, it's almost never going to be, uh, that you entered a clue that could be the, or entered an answer that could be the correct answer, but just didn't happen to be the one they wanted. Uh, that does happen, but like then the crosses fix that, but it is fairly common for me to like enter, uh, a word that is like one letter away from the correct answer that could also be a correct answer. Uh, and the cross that would correct it is something that I don't know, but looks plausible. And that's really, that's fairly common for me. And one nice thing about doing the puzzle in print is that I'll never find out if I got it wrong. I can just say like, yeah, yeah it looks right to me and, <laughs> I can, and, and, and walk away. Yeah. I think that's a benefit that it doesn't show you that because otherwise you would just go crazy. Yeah. Hey, Jim, are you, is there any like social side to this crossword puzzle uh, hobby you have? Like, are you on crossword puzzle forums and stuff comparing like? I, you will find me occasionally posting on the crossword subreddit. Oh, yeah. There oh, are, yeah. There are, I forget which one it is. There are two crossword subreddits. One is crossword and one is crosswords. One is for cryptic crosswords, like in the UK. And I don't remember which is which. And one is for American stock crosswords. Um, so I'll occasionally post in there. I read it, I guess, daily, get, getting people's reactions for- uh, I got into both, but I don't follow either of them now. There was yeah. sort of a cryptic cross crossword app on Android I was using that had like a bank of like crosswords that came with the app. And I did those a bunch and then uh, stopped doing it. And I haven't been back to crosswords or cryptic crosswords uh, since. But uh, it's interesting that it's that scaling up puzzles basically doesn't work, that it's the same thing with Rubik's Cube, that um, like I can solve a, th a three by three, I can solve a four by four, I can solve a five by five, and I can also solve a seven by seven. But like the seven by seven and the five by five are not meaningfully harder. They just take more steps. It's just like you got to uh, sure. do more work to finish them. Yeah. Oh, the other thing that is, um, I do that the social aspect of my crosswording is that I will read clues to my wife as we are going to sleep. Like she usually falls asleep first because I'm reading to her. I'm reading crossword puzzle clues. Uh, and we will, we will do the puzzle together until she falls asleep and then I'll do the rest in the morning. So I guess that's another reason that I can't use this for just uh, hangouts with people in the afternoon or whatever. Yeah, they might fall asleep. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then my wife will get angry that I, I put someone else to sleep with these crosswords. It's an emotional affair. <laughs> that is very sweet, though. Like, I, I like that. That's nice. Yeah, very sweet story. Yeah, yeah we like it. <laughs> We're great. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes. Yes. 
So for this topic, we're going to be doing the poem Down by the Bay by Rafi. Who would like to read this poem? Uh, I'll read it because I suggested it. Yeah, I have not been formally broadcast trained, so uh, I would appreciate that. Well, I'm not going to use any of my broadcast training, but uh, but I will read it. But I will I will mark that um, this is a song that we are reading as a poem, and it's by yeah. Rafi, who is a time traveler from the future who brings back future children's songs for us to enjoy in the present. I was going to ask, is, is is this not a like a, a folk song or a traditional? Was it actually written by Rafi? It sounds like it should be a traditional song like Jimmy Crack Corn or something. But as far as I can guess, because I looked it up before I added it to the topic bucket, uh, he, he just wrote it. Like, I don't yeah. know how, but he just wrote it. Yeah, weird. Is this uh, the same Rafi that wrote Banana Phone? <laughs> Did he write Banana Phone? He wrote Baby Beluga, but it wouldn't surprise me. Like, that's why I say he's a time traveler from the future is because, like, he manages to make a lot of these timeless feeling songs. And yeah. But so, Rafi is, is a national treasure. For which nation? Canada? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah. Wait. Author Armenian, Armenian descent, born in England, born in Egypt, rather. Uh, so apparently uh, a global treasure. Okay. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'm fine with that, too. When you said national treasure, I was like, I don't think he's American, but he might yeah. be. Like, yeah. Should have known by the name Rafi. Well, hey, now. All right. So uh, here's the here are the lyrics to this song, Down by the Bay, as a poem. Down by the bay, where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. For if I do, my mother will say, did you ever see a goose kissing a moose? Down by the bay, down by the bay, where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. For if I do, my mother will say, did you ever see a whale with a polka dot tail? Down by the bay, down by the bay, where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. For if I do, my mother will say, did you ever see a fly wearing a tie? Down by the bay, down by the bay, where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. For if I do, my mother will say, did you ever see a bear combing his hair? Down by the bay, down by the bay where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. For if I do, my mother will say, Did you ever see a llama eating pajamas down by the bay? Down by the bay where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. For if I do, my mother will say, Did you ever have a time when you couldn't make a rhyme? Down by the bay. Down by the bay where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go. And um, you may have heard other versions of this song with other lyrics uh, inserted, which is why I added it as a poem for the episode, because it seems like it's ripe, no pun intended, because it's about watermelons, but it's ripe for people adding their own rhymes to the middle of it. Bravo. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I think of this song as being one that is performed improvisationally. Like, obviously, the, the Rafi version is is a fixed recording. It's, an, it's on an album. So that's not going to change. But like when, when you sing this song in a group or to your kid, it, it behooves you to make up your own things that your mother will say. 
Yeah, and I can't remember the lyrics. And the lyrics in some of the videos that we've watched with my children are different from this. And it makes me not able to remember any of them. And so I just make shit up. And yeah. But I feel like that's a strength of this poem that you can just like put anything you want into it and it works. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think that's uh for for whatever reason it reminds me of um in in the Hat DLC there's a a mini game where you, it's it's like a digging roguelike. It's kind of a platformer roguelike where you're you're digging with a toothbrush and in most roguelikes you the level generator has a bunch of rules to make sensible level levels and levels that would be good gameplay but the level generator for this game for this roguelike is just it spews noise into the into the map and and by noise i mean randomly chosen tiles of the available tile set uh and it's entirely up to the rules of the game to make it make any set of tiles be fun like i don't know maybe this is a, a this comparison is a stretch but like I think that's a like a rule set that can make any random shit fun is is really powerful. Yeah, it's certainly better than like the Finger Family song where it's like you can extend <laughs> the Finger Family song with like oh, sneaky finger, doggy finger, fishy finger. Like you can just add you just keep adding members of the family and it's right, fine, but, but it's not more interesting. But if you only have 5 fingers, then then that makes it difficult. Well, it's the same five finger, five fingers every time. That's true too, yeah. It's a good point. I never thought about it that way. I just keep reusing fingers. Oh, okay. Yeah. I cheat. Oh, okay. Do your kids know how many fingers you have? Well, they're very confused on that now, now that I messed them up. <laughs> but this song, it can just keep going and you can keep adding in interesting like twists to it, e even if you don't know the original lyrics or past the end of the proper lyrics or you can just do whatever you want with it. And it's uh, it's going to be fine. I like how each verse has a quote from the mother. So you can like sing along and then hit the break and like, you know, do a mocking motherly voice. And they're like, did you ever see a bear combing his hair? You know, like really mess the cadence up a little bit with that. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. Yeah, you can do that. There's a lot. Yeah, and the uh, the frame story here, I think, is is not something that we talked about, but I think is very interesting which is like the frame story is like nonsense it's like you know down by the bay where the watermelons grow and i had thought because of the content of the verses that this was like an absurdist thing and so i misheard the lyric as where the watermelons roam like they're just like walking watermelons <laughs> and it, the attack attack of the killer tomato watermelons or whatever exactly yeah and I just – and so for me, I was like, oh, this is an absurdist thing. I'm down with this. And then I looked at the lyrics. It's like, oh, where they grow? And I'm like – and then the mother's just like saying stuff. She's just saying nonsense. But the the frame story too, yeah, is like uh, – it makes you think, you know? Uh, and then, <laughs> yeah. And then also there are a lot of opportunities to make it dirty that have not happened. You know, if only there was some kind of topic wherein we could discuss the possibility of a thing and not being made dirty on the internet. That might be good. Uh -huh. The more I'm reading this, the more I'm concerned about the mental health of the mother. She's saying a lot of weird stuff here. You know, is this, uh, is this, should we be concerned of dementia? Is this, there's some darker undertones to this poem or I'm just so, I'm, she's probably fine, right? She's the probably good. The hypothesis that came up 
Oh, this this was n- a number of episodes ago. But the hypothesis that came up um, on Topic Lords was that people who seem to have dementia are just running around quoting like the equivalent of saying Rick and Morty quotes from the 1950s. <laughs> like they're just like, I, I remember this thing from a from a 50s cartoon that I really enjoyed. Oh, the kid doesn't get it. Well, that's fine. Yeah. And, and the, the child is clearly scarred, you know, like back to my home, I dare not go. Yeah. For if I do, my mother will say, you know, did you ever see a goose kissing a caboose, you know, or something like he or she or they are clearly scarred by this. It's dark. Yeah. Not happy about hearing about this goose. Well. Are you ready for another topic? Yes. Yes. Kev, your topic is video game franchises known for secrets. I think this came up in discussion recently. Jim, you actually mentioned to me that the franchise, uh, I believe, is Guild Wars. Oh, yeah. uh, Is known for secrets. And that stuck with me because that's something I had not considered. And that had a lot of weight coming from you, who is, you know, someone I consider like a guru of secrets and implementing secret mechanics into games. Uh, So I started thinking about other franchises that are secret heavy um, and kind of known as part of their brand. I recently played through uh, Tactics Ogre Reborn and uh, the second installment in the Ogre Battle series, which is one of my favorite series uh, of all time. And they are heavy on the secrets uh they have like you know a day and night system huge world map like uh uh you know a lot of like economic stuff built in so you you know some of their secrets secrets are like you have to be at this spot at this time of day carrying this item and you have to have like a you know a relationship score with this character in your party to this to then unlock this whole like branch of the storyline that you probably wouldn't know about uh, otherwise un- unless you hit those sets of circumstances. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, that opens up like the discussion of like, is that a, what makes a good secret in a game? Like, is that really a good secret or is that just kind of hiding information from the players and stuff? Uh, so a lot to talk about on this. Yeah. What, what you were talking about reminded me of the Mortal Kombat series, which I think is a very, uh, very secrets focused series as well. Like when when I think of like a, what 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 of uh, uh, games that are full of secrets, I think of games like Zelda, where you're actually you're physically exploring a space, and the secrets are physical a lot of the time. A Doom is also that way. Yes, a Doom or a Mario, but like games like Mortal Kombat, like the secrets are button sequences that you push and weird things happen. Yeah, or or extremely violent things. Um. And I do. I really think that was a part of the, um, at least originally, uh, when, when the game first launched, was a part of the appeal of that game was, like, hearing rumors about what you could do, uh, and maybe you know there's one guy who knows how to do this one character's fatality in your in your in your in your arcade, and everybody gathers around in, in case they get to see it happen. Yeah, be, beyond like the. The secret input combinations. Mortal Kombat did have, like, you know, the secret unlockable characters, like a reptile or smoke. Uh, and then, like, the secret, like, oh, 
you can knock, you know, you can knock this person off the screen into the pit on this this map, right? Like that. Yeah. That kind of stuff was that was a bit more interesting from a secret perspective to me than just like uh, the special move inputs and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that stuff that stuff is super interesting. I think. Yeah, and some of the Mortal Kombat stuff comes out of the limitations of that like fighting game format. And one of the things that they did do that was sort of innovative was that on the splash screen, on the versus screen that would come up in like Mortal Kombat 3, maybe it was also 2, but I think definitely in 3, they had that little like slot machine thing that would change as you did inputs so that you can do like, you know, throws encouraged or they, they put in a system whereby inputs on that screen reflected a visual thing that you could then track to some kind of secret but then also frequently both players had to do it because they were cognizant of the fact that they were it was a multiplayer game in the arcade and so it's like if you want throws encouraged you need both players to do that like that sequence yeah that's interesting so jim why is uh guild wars in your mental lexicon of like secret uh franchise games i haven't played any of them but they're kind of in my wheelhouse so i'm intrigued to check it out now yeah um so i haven't played a ton of this game but i remember playing uh back in the geez it would have been like 2005 or something like that and i I remember playing uh like four or five hours of it and putting it aside thinking like this is not interesting uh and it was like a it was like an mmo very tolkien-esque like lute and flute soundtrack and you're running around killing rats and collecting treasure and it's like okay I I don't need this in my life but around like hour 10 there like the the world that you've been running around in like there's a story event that happens when you finish a certain quest and it flashes forward like past the apocalypse where the world you're running around in is destroyed and now you're running around in a destroyed version of it and it's a much more it's much less like straightforward Tolkien-y kind of a situation and much more like an interesting new take on fantasy. And I just thought that was a really neat, like, yeah, very Frog Fractions move, actually. Uh, and it's one that when I first played the game, I just uh, I just never got that far. The fact that, like, it is secret enough, even though, like, this is the intended route through the game, the the, the big twist is secret enough that people might not see it. That's super interesting to me that they were willing to they were, they were willing to do that. So that's like a bit of subversion then, right? Or uh Yeah, I I I'm not sure if subversion is the right word, yeah. but I bet you could say that they at least uh they they subverted the 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 fantasy tropes that that happened in the first uh the first 10 hours of the game. Uh the other example that comes to mind is one that I heard about, uh which was just like a friend of mine talked about playing I think it might, it might have been at this point Guild Wars 2. Uh, and finding like just stumbling on a stair going down a cliff and following it and finding this big underground cave with a castle in it and exploring the castle and there being seemingly no gameplay purpose to it other than just to be an interesting space. And it may actually be, it may turn out that this is like a quest takes you there later or something like that. But that that really struck me as like yeah I want this is what I want out of a video game I want to f- like go down a stairway and find a castle yeah to me like that's what that's what the Dark Souls games and the From Software games have done really well which is that 
you kind of will go most places eventually, but you can go most places a lot earlier than you ought to, such that you can kind of, uh, maybe Elden Ring is a lot more like this, but the way the Elden Ring is designed, you just get smashed if you go where you're not supposed to go in a way that is very uncharacteristic of a, like a Souls game. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, Guild Wars 2 has some systems that point you everywhere on the map eventually. Um, Like it rewards you for like map discovery completion and stuff like that. And so I imagine that that is not unused, that it is used at some point. Yes. Right. So Jim, I'm curious if you as a game developer have a formula or some kind of model that you follow when you go to implement a secret. Like, uh, do you have like a, you know, a set of properties that you're trying to hit to, you know, you know, like what makes something feel like a, a rewarding secret, uh, in your craft? Uh, so when I was making the hat DLC, I had, um, a rule that I was following that was based on a Niflus tweet, uh, in which he said it was something like new rule every Friday, you must add a secret to your game. And I just, I took this to heart. And every Friday I, I tried to think of like a new kind of thing you could do. Um, a new, a new kind of like interaction you could have or a new, a new thing you could find in the game. And, the way that I approached that was to have secrets of all sorts of all sorts of scopes and all sorts of difficulties of finding the secret. And so there there wasn't really that I was tuning like the secrets to be of a certain level of secrecy or a certain um level of reward because I just had all sorts of both. Does that answer your question? Uh a little bit, yeah. Yeah, this makes you want to go back and replay the hat DLC because now I think that maybe there are secrets that I did not find, even though my perspective as a player was that I found some secrets and I was like, yes, these are all the secrets to find, which to me is very satisfying because it's like the thing that I don't like in a game is when like there's the Doom thing where they point out how you didn't find all the secrets, which is I think is kind of fine. But for me, the the thing that I find unsatisfying is that is if I'm trying to like intuit the mind of the developer to find secrets instead of trying to like work with the mechanics inside the game to find secrets. Yeah, well, unfortunately, there's both. That's great, though. That's great. Okay, like, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, because like, th- like an adventure game is not something that I come to for an exhaustive kind of experience, whereas something like an Elden Ring or a Dark Souls, I do. Which is why I had so much trouble with like Baba is You is because a lot of those puzzle solutions were very much like into it, the mind of the developer. And oh, sure. And like I don't get that. I didn't get that sense from like the hat DLC or your work. And so like I I, uh, I realized that, that it's that there might be both. But to me, that's OK because of the kind of game that it is. OK, sure. Yeah, yeah. The. Making frog fractions gives you a lot of leeway in terms of what people will accept as an acceptable part of the game. Like, that game is full of bugs. <laughs> but what about bug porn? What about bug porn rule 34? There's, oh, you know what? The frog fractions rule 34 is contained in frog fractions. So there's no need for anybody else to make it. Oh, this just broke my brain. It exists in the frog fractions universe. Yeah, it's just done already. Someone no. did it already. No, because if it's 
proper Rule 34, it can't be made by the original developer. It can't be sanctioned. What rule is it if it is sanctioned? Oh, man. Is it just fan service? Is it like Rule 34A? <laughs> Are there uh, sub substroke Z or something like? Is this Brazil? Are we uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes. Uh, so this topic is five tined forks. Have you have either of you seen a five tined fork? Don't all forks have five tines? I encourage you to to do a Google image search for five tined fork and and tell me a reaction. Is this a thing like how where when they make animated characters, they give them four fingers because five fingers looks weird? It's like that. So five time forks, I'm getting a lot of what I would call a pitchfork back. A lot of images of pitch pitchforks. Couple Im- images of cutlery uh, dinner forks. Dinner forks is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. These do look wrong. Yeah. They look actively unpleasant to me. Like, I don't want to look at them. How many times does a traditional, regular, run-of-the-mill fork have? Turns out it's four. Four huh. is the right number of tines for a fork. Like, historically, they they started out with a stick, and the stick is fine. You know, you can pick up your food with it, but you keep stabbing yourself. But hey, if you got two, you, to you got chopsticks. Right. You, you add another, another, another tine. You got a two-tined fork. That's better. They had another tine, three tine fork. And each of these tines like is more work for the smith. Like they have to construct each one of these individually. So like there's a cost here, but people were like, no, three tines is better than two. Let's put three tines on our forks. Let's try four tines. That's even better. And then someone tried a five tine fork and they were like, no, too many. This is obviously wrong. Just looking at it. Yeah. It looks hostile somehow. Yeah. But so... There is probably some kind of friction-based algorithm, like calculation you can run that makes it so that four tines is the best, right? Because if you got like two, right, you can you can kind of use that for fruit, but you're going to be slipping and sliding a lot, right? But there is some amount of surface area you need in contact so that the fork doesn't slip. And your thinking is that maybe that they decided four was the thing and five was too much, maybe too grippy somehow. I'm wondering if anybody ever went six and maybe this is just a odd versus even kind of thing. I personally, for some reason, I find odd numbers more hostile than even numbers. Uh, Don't know what that's about. That's interesting. Yeah. But if somebody before this conversation had put a gun to your head and said, how many forks – or sorry, how many tines do forks usually have? Would you have been able to answer? I, th- well, I would have I, I would have guessed probably five. Before I, I discovered – this is something that horrifies me. I think I would – I knew that it was four, but I'm not sure. I can't remember for sure. Yeah, I think I would have said five, but I, I also can't unknow this conversation, so it's difficult. But this right. is a very spooky episode. We should wait to release it until Halloween. <laughs> I'm looking at a photo of a Victorian silver-plated five-tined fork, very decorative, ornate handle on Pinterest. And I'm wondering, Jim, your uh, anecdote about the Smiths putting on, you know, having to make the two times, three times, four times, five times. I wonder if this was like some kind of 
Victorian flex where it's like, yeah, yeah, I got a five-time silver-plated cutlery kid over here. Check this out, you know? Like, if that was some kind of, like, bougie wealth flex race that would take, uh, you know, take off. Oh, five times? I got seven-time forks. Come on. (laughs) All right. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't even Google for six tined forks. I've got 34 tined forks. Uh, <laughs> but also, like, do we know that forks were smithed? Like, I'm sure at some point they were, but wasn't, like, wasn't there, like, molding and cat and, like, die casting happening at some point? Whoa, I, like, just, I just pulled up a seven tined bacon fork. Sorry to interrupt, sis, but yeah, there's, there's seven tiners out there. Yeah, and that just looks like nonsense. It's not. It's not uncanny anymore. It's just like it just doesn't look like a fork anymore. This is this is why the fork thing is so mysterious to me. Is that like if you look at like a cake fork or you look at a fork that's meant to be used with fruit, there's always fewer tines, even though fruit is more slippery. Like for meat, like if a bacon, no bacon fork needs seven tines because you could do fine with two tines because it's sticky. What's the deal? Well, these seven-tine forks, they, they're so wide, they're almost like a shovel with teeth. They're, so there's like a, it's like a platform behind the tines. So if you're serving something, almost like a, like a pie knife or something, you, you're, you're, we're moving out of the realms of forks here. And this is like, we're moving yeah, into now like... I'm looking at- I'm looking at seven string bases now. <laughs> are we getting into sp- are we getting into sporks? Seven times sporks. Oh, oh, okay. Looking for that now. It's like they really broke the mold when they invented the spork. Like the spork is the proper uh, demolition man had it right. You know, Taco Bell's going to be in the future because they got sporks. I have been. I am unable to find any sporks with uh, anything other than four tines. They have four though, not three. Yeah, it's always exactly four. Spork manufacturers know what's up. I got to rethink my life. (laughs) Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. So the topic here is horrible exceptions to Rule 34, but this is is going to be the last topic of the show. So if you don't (laughs) want to hear about this, we're going to talk about horrible things. Just go ahead and, and throw your phone into like an open sewer. You'll be much happier. Yeah, I'll say that we will talk about kinds of pornography. Starting strong this episode. All right. (laughs) Okay, so this is my topic, and so I will intro it. Uh, I now have a two-episode streak of talking about pornography topics on Topic Lords, despite my previous sayings that I am like Ned Flanders and I am squeamish about these things. Does that qualify you as the uh, pornography lord of Topic Lords (laughs) now? I think it does. I mean, by just but by sheer numbers. Yeah, I've got two. Uh, you know, in binary, that's like eleven. The, so there are exceptions to Rule Thirty Four, and everybody uses Rule Thirty Four on the internet as like a joke of like, oh, it, pornography exists of everything. Rule Thirty Four, Rule Thirty Four, ha 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 ha. But it's it's actually not true, and there are some horrifying exceptions to it in cases where you would be like. No, there must be pornography of this character, and it does not exist. And then the thing that I find horrifying is not simply that there might be characters where pornography doesn't exist, but there are specific human pairings and human activities that you would assume there would be documented video evidence of all over the internet that simply does not exist. 
Yeah, go ahead and give us an example. So this example, if you have seen the movie Requiem for a Dream, you might have seen the one of the you know the climactic scene um, where there's Keith David and there's a couple girls and there's a sex toy and they're doing a certain and kind one of one of them. One of them is is Jennifer Connelly. Yes, one of them is Jennifer Connelly. That's true. If you haven't seen the movie, you might still have seen an animated heath of just this scene because I've, yeah. I've definitely seen one. Or even just Keith David's face saying ass to ass. Like that right, is, I think, right. I feel like that is uh, a thing. And so the thing that got me was I was like, you know, there exists video of women doing this, uh, not just because of the movie, like the actual act itself predates the film. And uh, after that, I was like, you know what? If you're gay and you're a man... What's to stop you from doing this? Not much. And I was like, there must be video of this. This must. There must be pornography that has this. Then you go on and you search. And there's a lot of gay porn on the internet. Like, this is not a thing where it's like, oh, man, this is going to be like, you know, this, this is going to be taken down by some censorship thing or whatever. Same kind of thing as all the other gay porn on all the other gay porn sites. And you will not find... A video of two men doing that same act. This is very surprising to me. Yeah, same. I find this... I'm not going to do the research here. I find it hard to believe, though. Additionally, if this is true, it sounds like a market opportunity for a budding young pornographer to step in and fill this gap. So, uh... Right, and then <laughs> you could get Linda Hunt to say, ass to ass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listen, Esper, cut Kev's mic. He's uh, he's taking my next business opportunity. That has viral <laughs> potential right there. You could just recreate the Requiem for a Dream scene and just ship it. And I would love to be proven wrong on this. Like I have spent a year on this project and which is not like a lot of my time, like constantly searching. A full time year. <laughs> I have brought this up to multiple gay people in my life, multiple people who love pornography in my life. Right. And and none of them were like, oh, well, obviously you wouldn't see this because, and then some reason that only gay people would know. Well, no. I mean, there's that. But none of, and then also none of them were like, hey, here's a link. You know? Like. Right. There was, they, they all said, oh, yeah, you're right. But then also they did give <laughs> me the reason that you said, which is a reason that gay people would understand which is that that's co considered kind of a submissive kind of thing in a way that doesn't make sense for the pornography industry to do uh, because it involves men. Huh. Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't totally get the, the social dynamics of gay porn. Right. And the, their, their point was that, yes, in gay pornography, you'd usually have like a dominant person and a submissive person but you don't usually have two submissive people like it's um it's kind of a formula and there is nowhere in the industry for you to slot in two submissive people doing this even as much sense as it makes logically that the way things work in pornography is so gendered and so sorted into these categories that you're not going to find this thing. 
I feel like in a rigid sense of like there's a porn industry, but I'm, I mean, we live in an era of amateur porn, like everywhere. Everyone's posting stuff online, just swaths of data. And, you know, I don't, I don't feel like this uh, notion that the porn industry is restricting it because it's a, uh, submissive thing for male actors or whatever would stop amateurs from trying to produce something like this. Well, uh, if they if they saw a gap and decided it needed to be filled, then that's one thing. But like in one way or another, if right? If you're making uh, amateur porn, it's probably because you're really into porn, and it's then. And if you're really into porn, you've probably absorbed all the social mores from the porn that you enjoy. Yeah, but I also agree with Kev's point here, which is like the reason I think it's horrifying is that it seems so logical that it should exist. There is no reason really that it should not exist. Yeah. But the fact that it doesn't fills me with a kind of vertigo that like there is a thing that I can think of that is so easy. And by easy, I mean like it takes some training, but like you get two blokes in a room, you know. You pay him fifteen hundred dollars. You can probably get this. Yeah, it's 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 totally doable. Like I I've got that much money, I could do this. <laughs> it's even if even if somebody could give me a link that's like okay, here's a I could video. go to Fiverr right now. Yeah, you could definitely uh, put out some contracts. The way things are progressing with AI, it's not going to be long before you just text prompt this. And I wonder whether like AI would be more likely to make this sort of porn because it's like just let's just cover all the possible sex acts with all the possible kinds of people. Like that's that would be a sensible approach. Like just get get, get some sex dice and iterate through all the combinations. Yeah, that's what, 36 combinations? So what, there's the D6s? Like, yeah, like, come on, yeah. Yeah. This topic does remind me of a story. I was at a rave. I met a, we'll say, startup pornographer who was doing a, a project called something like Mr. Beavers, which was okay. masculine presenting actors with feminine genitalia. They had identified that this was a niche market and yeah, uh, a dry, I see that. <laughs> a dry spell in uh content and they were trying to capitalize on that it's like a a minotaur or a or a mermaid it's yeah, like a, or a, a unicorn a or a unicorn but like this is why i find it um sort of psychologically damaging is that there are so many things that have been identified as like this is a hole in the market this is what could exist we see there's an uptick on interest for this thing and there are so many weirder combinations of things you can plug into a search engine on a porn site and get hundreds of videos. And if you plug in this one or many others that you could think of, you will not find them. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's part of why I think America is going downhill. I think America should be leading <laughs> the way. Yeah. Yeah. I And that always makes me wonder, like, is this because there is just people don't want everything? People only want some things. I think that's the case. Yeah. Uh, uh, for my part, I have been completely unable to find Frog Fractions Rule 34. Sounds like a, another gap. 
yeah, another another uh, the the fr- the frog fractions pornography gap. Yeah, I don't want to say the worst thing, which is that the hat DLC makes that more likely that there will be rule thirty four, and it's shocking that there's not. Yeah, well, the hat DLC didn't get get played by nearly as many people, but I I could totally see like hopping draggy porn. I could see that happening. <laughs> I have seen um someone did a. Uh, what was the name of the My Little Pony spinoff where the the ponies were people? I saw the equivalent of that for uh, for some of the characters. That sounds horrifying, but I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, that was. That's, I haven't heard of that. It sounds pretty scary. Uh, they show it to children. It's not as scary as you think. Like content warning: throw your phone in the ocean if you listen to this part of the episode <laughs> because we mentioned ponies as people. And that's all the time we have for topic lords, Kev. If this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Kev Zettler is the handle. And sis, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yes, you can find me on Twitter at cishetkfaber. That's um, spelled as if you're like a cisgender heterosexual person and then also you're really into like wrestling and kayfabing. But then if you don't want to do that, probably most easy to find me on the Topics Lords Discord, which is a great place to hang out. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I can vouch it's a fun place to be. Thanks so much for being on. It was a fun time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!